Genesis chapter 32, verse 24. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. I'll read that one more time. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. I have an interesting awareness, if you will, and a newfound appreciation for that verse. Some of us know this verse. Some of us know the context of the verse. But I'm going to give you a little bit of backstory of what happened. Jacob is uh, the son of Isaac and the brother of Esau. They're twins, Esau and Jacob. And when they were born, Jacob had a hold of Esau's heel, so they called him supplanter, the crafty one, the one who would take. And Jacob is gone out of town, running from his brother, past a stony place to sleep, ended up in the land of Uncle Laban, where he worked for him for his two daughters and some livestock. And this verse is him going back from his uncle Laban, back toward his home country, leaving the land where he's worked all those years and coming back to the promised land. And Jacob has sent his family, his livestock, and everything ahead of him at a place called Jabbok Ford. Jabbok Ford is along the Jabbok River running east to west in a kind of a hilly mountainous area where he's getting ready to cross over the Jordan and back into Israel. But there's more story to it than that. And we need more story. But before we do, I've got to tell you that if you look in the next couple verses, you see that Jacob is wrestling with God. And God does not prevail. Jacob will not let him go. Now, maybe you've heard people say, I'm struggling with my faith. I'm struggling with belief in God. And we go, oh, no, 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 you shouldn't do that. (laughs) Oh, no, 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 there's something wrong if you're doing that. Well, in this story, Jacob is wrestling and struggling and contending, if you will, with God. And Jacob, if you take this verse out of context, looks like he's doing something he shouldn't be doing. Why would you want to fight God? Why do you want to go against the Creator of all the universe? You know you're going to lose. Why would you try to tell God anything or contend with Him or even fight with God, wrestle with God all night long knowing that you can't prevail? Why would you do that? That makes no sense. But there's more to the story, always. We don't start at a struggle. We wind up in one. Most people who are struggling in life or hurting or are broken didn't start there. They wound up there over time. 
So I'm going to ask you to go with me 22 years previous plus back in time to the beginning of this story. Actually, not really the beginning of the story, but the beginning of this part of the story because Jacob is already an older fella 22 years previous. If you look with me in Genesis 27, Jacob takes the birthright. Throughout that chapter, it's showing how he has stolen the birthright from his brother Esau. The first thing he took was the blessing, and now he's taking the birth, or the, excuse me, the other way around. He took the birthright for a meal previously, and now he's taking the blessing by putting on woolly clothes on his arms and his mother making him a nice stew and, and, uh, doing a bunch of different things to disguise himself as his brother because Isaac, his father, is now poor of hearing, poor of eyesight, and is ready to bless his son, his oldest son, before he dies. So he tells Esau to go and cook up some of his great food and he'll bring it to him and Isaac will bless him with the blessing. Well, his mother hears this and she says, Jacob, you take it. I'll cook it while he's off hunting for the food and we'll do all this and we'll take that from him and you'll get the blessing. And that's what happens. And because this is happening, we know Isaac is very old. Up in years. He's ready to pass on the family heritage to the oldest son, which turns out to be the second oldest in this story. And when he finishes blessing Jacob with the proper birthright blessing that Esau was supposed to have, Jacob leaves. Walks out. And Esau walks in almost immediately. And he says, Here I am, Father. I want your blessing. And he said, I just gave it to you. And he said, No, no, I just came in. Here's your food. Feel me, Father. Hear my voice. And he said, I've given it to your brother Jacob, who disguised himself as you. Isaac shortly thereafter passes away and they begin the period of mourning. And Jacob hears through the grapevine that Esau, when the period of mourning is over, is going to slay his brother. That's verse 41 in Genesis 27. Esau is living and I'm going to slay my brother Jacob when the time and period of mourning is over. Didn't want to disrespect his father's funeral rites, etc., and of course, when Jacob hears that, his mother again says, tell you what, go to your father and tell him you don't want a woman from this tribe, you want one of those better women from another tribe where your uncle Laban is. And so, so you want a good heritage. And so he goes and tells his father that, and he says, well, why don't you go to uncle Laban and go? So he leaves. Along the way, maybe you remember the story of Jacob's ladder. This is when he's leaving to go to Uncle Laban's place, but he's really running in fear from his brother Esau, who has vowed to his death that he will kill his brother Jacob. So as he's running, he gets tired, he makes a pillow of stone, and he sees a ladder. You know the story how angels are descending and descending on it, and it's the gate of God. But in the midst of that, what happens is quite interesting. In chapter 38, verse number 
15, God makes a promise to Jacob. He says, Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. This is a promise. There's other things that God has promised him in the verses before that. But this is the one I want you to focus on. God says, I will bring you back to this land. This is Canaan land. This is the promised land, the land of his father, and where his brother is. The brother who intends to kill him when he sees him. Without thought. And God says to him, I will bring you back here myself. And I will not leave you until I do. And so he goes. And he works for Uncle Laban. And he works for him for many years. Getting two wives, many children, many livestock. And they begin to depart. And in Genesis chapter 31, God says in verse 3, The Lord said to Jacob, and this is after all of those years have passed where he's working for his wives and livestock. God says to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your family and I will be with you. He's telling him to go back home. But in that situation, you've got to know two things to understand what's going on. When Isaac blessed Jacob by mistake to Jacob instead of Esau. And Esau comes and he says, can't you fix it? And here's what Isaac says. I cannot change what I've said. I cannot take the blessing off your brother. You're going to have to serve him all the days of your life. That's your blessing. You have his, he has yours. Listen, he can say, oh, I made a mistake, God. Let me switch that. But he can't do that. Once he says it, it's done. Get that. Once he says it, it is done. When Esau said, I will slay my brother as soon as I see him. Once he says it, if he does not, he brings shame on himself and there's no way he's going to do that. So he has vowed that once his brother is inside, his brother will be dead. It doesn't matter how long it takes. When God makes a promise, He's going to keep it. And that's the same way they understood their word to one another then. It should be that way with us. That when we say our word in a handshake, we mean it. That we're not retracting it, going back on it, or wavering. Although, I see it happen a lot that people break their word nowadays. A lot of people's word isn't so good. But back then, you said it, it's done. There is no question of whether or not you might. You just do it. That's part of their culture. Still is. If they say they're going to do something, they don't go, well, maybe. They've deliberated on it for a while. And they're going to do it, and they know the cost of what it will take before they commit to something. So that's what Esau has said. I'm going to kill him. <laughs> now, 23 years later or so, Jacob is going to come back to the land and his brother is still alive. How do we know? Because Jacob has sent out people to search the land to see what it's like. 
and tell his brother he's coming. <laughs> Let's see what kind of welcome party we get here. Now the guides and scouts come back and say, we told your brother he's coming with an army. 400 men. Not he's coming with a welcome home party. An army. Friends. To help him keep his vow. If you were Jacob and you heard that word, he's coming with 400 men army to you. He's coming to meet you along the way. Are you going to think that maybe his brother's a little bit serious? Are you going to be a little nervous that maybe when that army or his brother, whichever sees him, is going to take his life? You know, well, it's been 22 years. You know, it shouldn't be a big deal. It's a big deal because he said he was going to, and he made the vow. It's going to happen because he said it. So Jacob hears God's promise saying, I'm going to bring you back to the homeland. And here comes Esau saying, Oh, no, you're not. Which looks more real? The promise of God or the reality of the world around you. That's where the struggle begins. When the world looks bigger than the promise of God. When the hurt seems bigger than what God says is true about it. When our brokenness doesn't seem to be repairable no matter how much grace we get. When the mountains that we climb or that are in the way are bigger this time than anybody's ever faced. And God says we're going to conquer them and they say there's no way. But does it say, Jacob, you're going to return to the homeland. Does it say that? His promise to him. It doesn't say that, that you will come back here. It doesn't say that at all. If you look real carefully at the promise and how God said that to him at Bethel, at the place where the ladder was, in verse 15, in chapter 28, hear it again. It's very important what God says. He says, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I'll not leave you until I've done what I've spoken to you. Two things here. God says, I'm with you and I'm going to keep you. Keep means protect. But He also says, I will bring you back to this land. In other words, you're going to know you didn't do it. That it was not of your efforts that I brought you back. It is when you come before God knowing that the situation is out of your control that you are hopeless and helpless there that the struggle starts when you start contending with God. In that moment you say, God, you said this, but look around me at what's happening. My life's in ashes and broken down. God, how can you say this is a promise? I don't see it happening. 
What can I do to fix this guy? And God's going to say, I didn't ask you to fix this. He said, I asked you to trust me and to follow me. And that I will do the work. In that moment, something inside of us says, God, you just don't get this. This is big. He's made a vow. This is bigger than life. We struggle. And if you don't struggle with God, I have to wonder if you've ever been challenged against His promises of what you're doing as compared to what God asked you to do. Because God's going to ask you to do something you can't do. And you can say, God, I've got all these reasons why I can't. Look, I've got all these things that are coming against you, God, and I can't do it. That's why. And He's going, I didn't say you do it. I do it. You just be available and I'll do it through you. I will do it. God does the work. Otherwise, who gets the glory? Gideon's army of several hundred thousand men had to be pared down to 300 to go against 100,000. <laughs> That's pretty steep odds, wouldn't you say? 300 against 100,000 or more? 300 without weapons. <laughs> so why did, God says, i got to get it down to small enough armor so you don't think you did it. So you will see this day the deliverance of God. That you will see my glory. And you will know that there is a God in heaven who rescues and redeems you. You will know this. And this is what Esau has promised to destroy God's promise out of Jacob's life. Because Jacob stole God's promise out of his. One for the other. 400 men coming. And Jacob sends his wives and his children and his livestock and all his servants ahead of him. And there he is, it says in that verse on the screen, he's left alone. And let me tell you something. This is where you find out where your faith is. When you're alone face to face with God. And you're not sure what's going to happen. Do you still trust God in that moment? Or are you going to stand there and go, God, I just don't know. I promise you, if you're like me, you start struggling a little bit. Go, God, I, this is big and I know you, you, I know you said that, but God, look. And, God, and we always want to tell God about our problem or the struggle. And God says, why don't you tell your struggle about me? Why don't you look at brother yours coming toward me and say, I have a God who promised He would bring me here. Well, let me tell you something. Jacob's headed that way. He's already sent everything across the river. He's coming the next day. You understand, he's trusting God's promise. But it's a point where you face up with the biggest challenge of your life. Will you fight God? God, you know, I, I need to go ahead. Gideon said, let me put out a sheep. <laughs> I need to see a fleece, not a sheep. I'm thinking of the wave off there. Let me put out a fleece. Twice he did it. And both times God answered it. Do you understand that God... His promises, great and exceeding promises. And in Jesus Christ, they're all yes. But I've got to take you from this struggle of Jacob that night, wrestling with God all night long, to something that happened 
Many years later. True story. In Luke 19, Jesus is entering Jerusalem. It's Sunday. Where we get Palm Sunday from. Amy read us part of the passage there in Luke 19. And Jesus is entering on a donkey. And what happens in this section to me is very telling of what's next. You see, Jesus is aware clearly by this time what's going to happen. And the only way for the cup that he's about to partake in to pass from his hands is if all the people would repent before God. (laughs) All the nation of Israel would repent before God and begin to accept Jesus Christ. That's all it takes. And Jesus won't have to go to the crucifixion. God will anoint Israel as the nation of all the world. Everything will be great for Israel. And um, he's on the donkey. They're they're waving. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're all shouting like we were, but for hours, long time. And Jesus, as he draws near, it says in verse forty-one, says he saw the city and he wept over it. Now Jesus doesn't weep unless there's some serious stuff going on inside at the grave of Lazarus and here. He doesn't even cry for himself at the cross. He doesn't weep when they whip him and beat him. He weeps as he looks coming down the Mount of Olives across the city and begins to cry. Why would Jesus cry over Jerusalem? What's going on inside him? There has to be something, some sort of contention that would bring out this deep passion. And this is what he says. He says, if you had known even you, especially in this your day, who I am. The things that would make for your peace right now. But now, they're hidden from you. And the days will come when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side. That means because they rejected Jesus, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. It happened 37 years later. And it's going to be, you're going to be level and your children within you will be gone. They'll be along to the ground and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you didn't know who I was. If you know who I was, none of this would have to happen. God could restore and reign His relationship here and you could do it. But you're rejecting the One who came to set it up. And so he's struggling with, why won't they receive God? Why won't they believe the promises of the Messiah and all that Jesus has said? And he's struggling inside, why won't they believe me? Why are they so hard-hearted? Why do they refuse the One who loves them the most that can do the best for them? And his struggle gets worse as he goes throughout the week. And in Luke chapter 22, something happens. And you throw a verse in there every now and then. I don't know how it happens, but it's new. It must be. 
in chapter 22, it, it kind of surprised me when I read through this this week. Um, he's establishing communion in the upper room right before he's to be crucified. His last time with the disciples while he's living before the crucifixion. And it says, um, it says they've gathered in the upper room. The water boy's already gotten the place guided to. And Jesus, it says, during the meal, takes the cup and gives thanks and says, take this and divide it among yourselves. This is the cup. And He says, I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. I want you to know that this is not that cup. This is the first cup of the Passover. The first cup of the Passover is to remember your bondage. It's to remember that you're enslaved. That God has poured out a blessing to redeem you from the bondage of Egypt. And the first cup signifies that God is going to redeem you. One day, God will. That's the first cup of the Passover. There are more than one. There's more than one cup in the Passover. But here it is. Jesus is struggling with trying to get them to understand who He is. And this is His closest disciples. And He passes this cup out. And he says, I'm not going to drink this one again until I drink it with you in the kingdom. And he means that very sincerely. Until you recognize he is Christ and Lord, he cannot partake with it with you because you have to belong to him for him to partake with you. And then it says, the rest of the ritual. Then he took bread, gave thanks and broke it, gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Do not forget what I do here tonight. Then listen to this verse. Here it is. Verse 20. Look, Likewise, he also took the cup after the supper. The second cup. Did you know there were two that he talked about? Did you read that before? I somehow missed it. I was using Corinthians instead of actually Jesus' section in Luke. And he said, this is the cup the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of the betrayer is with me on the table. Judas is still there. And truly, the Son of Man goes it has been determined. The Son of Man goes. I go the way I have to go in obedience to the cross. After this, they go to the Mount of Olives and they pray. And you know, if you've heard the story, that Jesus goes to stone throw away and Peter, James, and John begins to pray. And he says, Father, if it be your will, take this cup from my hand. I don't want it. I know it's your promise, but I don't want it. But not my will, yours be done. And this is what Jesus says to His Father. Three times He prays that. Do you think when He sweat drops of blood, which is from complete duress, is the only way that can happen, that He had a struggle? <laughs> do you think maybe He was contending a little bit inside? I don't want to do this. But I have to because God promised this to me. And I promise to be obedient. Do you think it sounds like Jacob saying, I don't want to do this, but God promised me so... 
I'm getting ready, but I gotta fight God a little bit on this one because I just don't know. I want to make sure. Why would you not contend with God in something big? This is life and death stuff. This is life changing stuff. This is Israel forming stuff for Jacob. It's redemption for us with Jesus. Why wouldn't he struggle? And why wouldn't you expect that we also, at some time in our life, would contend with the promises of God as compared to what looks like the reality of this world? Why wouldn't we struggle? Why wouldn't we need to come to this table and say, God, I believe, but I'm struggling right now. I need some help. And what's God going to say? Oh, no, 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 no. You've got to do better. God's going to say, this table is about what I've done for you. When the Apostle Paul said, come to this table and do not do it unworthily, please understand what that means. I've heard a lot of different ways that that's been explained that have been mostly incorrect. It does not mean that you are worthy to come. Worthily means that you come and you don't deserve to be there. When you think you own it and earned it and you have a right to that table because you belong to God and it's yours, that's unworthily. It's because of what Jesus Christ did that you have any position at this table. Nothing of all your benefit, merit, or worth. To think that you earned it. To think that you come because you did something is to take it unworthily. But to take it and say, Lord God, I contend with you. I can't do it without you. I can't make it through this world without you. This world's too big. It's too hard. I, I need you and I need to know you're here. I ain't letting you go until you tell me you're real. i got to have you. It's too hard without you. If you don't show me your heart, God, if you don't show me, how am I going to get through this? I can't. And that's how God says, come to this table. This is how He says, do not forget that I did this, not you. Jesus did it, not us. This is the kind of communion we come to today. This is the passion of Jesus Christ for us. And He did it so that we could enjoy the fellowship of the blessing with Him. This is what it's all about. You and I in communion with Jesus Christ because He says, Come! And who does He invite to the table? The broken. The wounded. The ones the world sees as unworthy. The outcast. The sinner. If you come thinking you're not a sinner, you're coming unworthily. We all sin and fall short of the grace of God. We need Jesus. And we need Him all the time. And we got to struggle with the fact that that's true. Because if you don't, your faith hasn't been tested. You must contend with God at some point to determine the validity of the promise that He's given you. The call in your life and your faith. This is part of what's called the trial by fire to see if your works are based on gold and precious promises. And each of us must face this. Each of us must struggle. Now back to Jacob. God has made him promises. He's made us promises. 
We must face adversity to see if we will trust God to keep His Word to us. God wants to know, will we see the obstacle bigger than God's promise? This very nature to doubt because something is in front of us bigger than we are is the very thing that causes the struggle and the questions of faith. Have you contended with your faith? If not, why not? Have you not ever had a trial or a struggle? Are you not in one? Today, I tell you this. This church has learned to struggle and to develop a vision out of that struggle for what God wants for us. We're going to talk about it at the board meeting. But before we do that, today, right now, we need to go to Javik Ford for communion. To contend a little bit. Contend, but come. Question, but commune. Deliberate, but dine. You are invited and the table is prepared. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you know in the last few weeks ago I was in the midst of a struggle and you had to work me through it and you had to show me the promise is bigger than the struggle. And I'm asking you to show us each tonight that your promise is bigger than no matter what we can throw at it. Because you are the one who leads us. You're the one who brings us to the promised land. It's not because of what we know or what we don't know, what we can or cannot do. It's because we know you are a God of faithfulness who never lets us down and always keeps His promises. God, let those promises come before us now that in Jesus Christ we are yes and amen and praise under Your holy name. And we do say blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord today and say, God, make straight Your ways that the King may enter in and we be lifted up and give Him glory. God, let us be here before You now God, we know we're not worthy of the blood of Jesus Christ. To think it otherwise would be a shame. So I'm asking you, Lord, as we commune today,